makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Heartfelt greetings and welcome. I shake your hand with good feelings in my heart, and the whole world is a beautiful day, as Teokas and Ghost Horse says. I'm Anne Kayla Kelly, sitting in as your host for First Voices Radio while Teokasin is out of town. Mahalo Nui for your generosity, as always, and for being here. This is all Native hosted, all Native produced, First Voices Radio, now in its 31st year of broadcasting. Our First Voices Radio producer is the incomparable Liz Hill. I want to welcome the more than 110 community, public, and commercial radio stations that carry First Voices Radio, and thank all of you who listen online and around our mother, the earth. Since this hour of First Voices Radio is coming to you from Hawaii, this week's show is dedicated to the dozens of lives lost and the thousands displaced by the wildfire that swept through Lahaina late Tuesday night and early Wednesday morning. Lahaina, a town now gone from us, before it was a tourist attraction, between the years 1802 and 1845, Lahaina was the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom, which is a nation state. And that history of us as a nation state is why Hawaiians today refer to the U.S. presence here as an illegal occupation. While many are talking about what, if any, role climate change had in this fire, some Hawaiians are reminding all of us that Lahaina used to be fertile and green. King Kamehameha III had his personal lo'i there. But the natural rivers, streams, and freshwater springs of Hawaii have been redirected for the past more than a century. 
for American plantation owners to grow pineapples and later for golf courses and real estate development. Fortunes have been made off of the way water and land is misused in Hawaii and all of those profit-driven enterprises severely impact our environment. The Hawaiian people may have lost precious cultural and historical material in this terrible fire, but we haven't lost our memory as a people about what Lahaina means to us. Yet, regardless of whether someone living in Hawaii is indigenous or a settler, we are, all of us, grieving. And for those who live here, our love for this place and each other, especially in times like this, will be measured by how we bear the weight of such tremendous sorrow. So let's get on with the show and please stay tuned all the way through because from this Malama Maui opening to First Voices Radio's tribute to Sinead O'Connor at the end, today's show concerns itself with the sacred. Our guest is Shannon O'Laughlin, Chief Executive and Attorney for the Association of American Indian Affairs. Shannon is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Her work on behalf of Indian nation sovereignty, self-determination and culture goes back more than 20 years. And today on First Voices Radio, she's discussing ongoing efforts to repatriate Native remains that continue to be held by American museums and universities for the Western, meaning Euro-American research. Aloha and welcome to First Voices Radio. Aloha and Yokoki from the Choctaw language. Gosh, it's so great to talk with you again. I know we, we had you on the show, I think in, in March? It was in the Somehow spring. I- yeah. It was about the Bonham Skinner auction. Auction, which, which they they never stopped. The auction's still continuing. Uh, Bonham's is still selling our, our items. Uh, 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 not too much has changed there, um, except for, uh, uh, I probably mentioned the Safeguarding Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act, uh, mm-hmm. that was passed in December. So the Department of Interior and the Department of State have opened up tribal consultation to talk about the regulations for the STOP Act. Mm-hmm. So that's currently ongoing with written comments due later this month. And so hopefully um, the export of, of Native cultural heritage um, overseas will, will stop or at least slow down uh, once those once that uh, those regs are in place, you say the export meaning going out of the U.S. to places like Europe or Asia or wherever. Absolutely, yep, that's exactly what I mean. Does that act, or does I'd like to talk about NAGPRA? I guess we can talk about that now instead of later. Does any do any of the U.S. federal acts help get anything back that's already been taken out of the U.S. Yes. Um, well, well, let me let me catch that a little bit. So the STOP Act was contemplated to first create a certification system that requires anyone who is transporting Native cultural heritage um, uh, outside of this country has to prove that they have um, ownership of that. So they have to attest, they have to certify that they have proper ownership. They have to show what their proper ownership is. And that information goes into a database that tribes have access to. So that if if a dealer, for example, says that, uh, uh, yes, I have proper ownership of this sensitive cultural heritage and wanna take it to France, 
so I can sell it at an auction, a tribe can can look at that information and say, oh, dear Secretary of the Interior, um, they do not own that. In fact, you know, here is facts and evidence. Otherwise, the secretary then has the power to pull that item back and refuse to give them a, a certificate uh, and possibly impose penalties on that person for um, basically lying that uh, to what they attested to. Mm -hmm. um, at that point, the dealer can say, well, ooh, I don't want to pay <laughs> civil penalties. I don't, I don't want to uh, uh, violate this law. What if I voluntarily return this back uh, to the Native nation? So mm -hmm. that's what the STOP Act allows for. So it won't go back in time. So things that have already been exported, the mm -hmm. STOP Act is not going to be um, uh, applicable uh, to those items that are already in other countries. This is just to help uh, uh, prevent the continuation of this trafficking overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's still a lot of work to do uh, regarding uh, international repatriation and cultural heritage that is in museums and, and institutions overseas, mm -hmm. as well as items that are continuing to be sold now that are in collections that are already overseas. So those, you know, we don't have any laws uh, either domestically or really internationally that help us. Most of the work to get that back is diplomatic work. Gosh, it's so interesting in a way, but still incredibly disturbing. You know, there's a higher law that goes beyond a legal system that we're not even able to get to that part as natives. We're forced to work within this legal structure that what is NAGPRA since 1990, only since then there's been this kind of legal thinking about what happens with native remains and native artifacts. Yes. Uh, actually, before NAGPRA, what kind of was the oh, and tell, let's tell, tell people what NAGPRA is. I'm sorry. I just sort of like threw that out there. And I'm assuming, I mean, we're already into it. So we just kind of went, <laughs> um, uh, uh, which is great. And I enjoy talking to you. So the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was a law that was ab advocated for not only by Congress. Congress wanted this law because they saw how many ancestors' bodies, so Native American bodies, were in institutions like the American Museum of Natural History and the different Smithsonian institutions. And they saw it and, and were completely disgusted by it. Um, so they, along with uh, Native advocates from organizations like the Association on American Indian Affairs and Morningstar Institute, the Native American Rights Fund, worked to um, uh, develop the legal language for the act and fought tooth and nail with quite a few uh, domestic museums, museums in the United States who really did not want to see this law passed. Because it would cut into their profits or? You know, it's hard to talk about this issue without talking about, you know, uh, colonial history 
-hmm. and how uh, the removal of native peoples from their homelands opened up lands uh, for homesteading and access, which meant that non-native people were going into native grave sites that were now on uh, their quote unquote land uh, and digging them up and taking away the pretty things and even in even the bodies. Uh, mm-hmm. but but at first it was this looting of the pretty things that are buried with people. And, and there quickly became a market in these items and many of these items, were taken to um, international uh, places and international collections uh, with foreign governments. And um, then there were uh, there was a burgeoning science, uh, there was burgeoning science that was studying uh, native human remains for the purpose of understanding who native people were uh, because it it didn't fit uh, the fact that native peoples were here in the western hemisphere didn't fit uh, uh, much of the knowledge that European countries had so uh, uh, they wanted to find out why native people were here of course they didn't ask us. They didn't right. ask Native people. <laughs> um, they dug up their bodies and began um, uh, creating theories on, on who Native people were. Uh, one of those theories was uh, uh, based on measuring the skull size of Native peoples and comparing it to other quote-unquote races. So comparing it to European skulls and and African skulls and Chinese skulls to make determinations of intellect and Mm. really who were were the superior peoples of the earth. And those types of theories actually didn't end until the 1980s when that research was put down as not only not appropriate and racist, but also without any intellectual value. It's incredibly Um, unscientific, those theories. Yes. I mean, just even if the proof is staring them in the face, they still have to find a way around it to prove their predetermined outcome of, you know, they're trying to get to a certain narrative, right? I mean, it's all about the story. Well, and the way that those scientists did it was they would say, let's take a bunch of kidney beans and put it in a skull and like how many kidney beans go in a, uh, or pellets or whatever they were using, how many go in, in this skull versus that skull. And that was the basis of, of those types of determinations back then. Yeah. And that's not ancient history. So, you know, along comes NAGPRA and, and now we've had how many, we've had 30, almost 40 years or 33 years, 33 33 and a half of this, what we we call in in native country is really our first human rights law. The law was intended in what Indian country thought the law was going to do was allow native nations in the door in these institutions and say, yes, these are ours. Uh, Let's repatriate these back and bring them home under kind of a prescribed uh, process. Mm -hmm. But what ended up happening 
were that uh, institutions, especially institutions who had resources, uh, were to basically paper the evidence. Uh, this is what lawyers love to do. Lawyers love to paper a case, meaning they will pull out and, and spend time and money pulling out all the research, all the evidence, even if it's clearly uh, not factual or, or hasn't been peer reviewed and pull it all together to kind of burden what tribes have to overcome in order to uh, uh, have their bodies come back so that they can give them the proper funeral that they, that they originally had. Uh, so um, institutions, you know, found ways in the regulations uh, in the regulations that are, are currently uh, in effect to kind of bypass that simple process of consultation and repatriation. That doesn't mean that all institutions followed that example of, of not wanting to return uh, ancestors and cultural items. Uh, many have. And I would say there's been about 100,000 or 110,000 ancestors that have been repatriated. But there are still about that same number of ancestors in U.S. institutions who have reported that they have ancestors uh, that are still uh, uh, haven't been repatriated. I want listeners to know about this ProPublica repatriation project. That's what I was uh, reading up on. Kind of goes to what you're saying right now. These institutions and 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 these are not small institutions. These are well-established, like name just the two biggies, if you will. The two biggies. Well, I've got a couple of favorites. Okay. Um, uh, uh, one of them is the, the Peabody Museum at the University of Harvard. Okay. And they've been around for a very long time. Very long time. A huge collection. They still have um, more than 6,000 ancestors that they say are unidentifiable, meaning that, that they don't think um, there's a, a shared identity with those ancestors and um, Native nations. Okay, I have to stop you right there. And this is the thing that gets me, okay? And you can help me understand this, please, Shannon. It sounds to me like what that institution and others are saying is because when those graves were looted, they didn't keep better track of which nation they came from? Is that what that is? So therefore, because they can't prove 100%, they can't give it back to any particular tribe? Is that what I'm understanding? Not quite, but okay. a little bit of that. Uh -huh. um, so, so what it takes what it takes under the law and what would be upheld under the law is that a shared group identity um, means that any piece of evidence uh, that points to that shared identity um, can support repatriation. So the idea is that the institution 
collects the information that it already has. It doesn't have to go searching for information or doing any other research to try to determine some kind of scientific notion of what affiliation is. It's a simple administrative process to say, okay, we have these ancestors. They came from this county in Georgia, let's say. Um, well, we, we all know the United States government knows um, and Native nations know what tribes are connected to that land base. And that alone is enough to affiliate those ancestors with those nations that are connected to that piece of land. Right. That's so all the be... evidence. That's right. all the evidence you need to repatriate and return. So what's what's the snag then? If that's what you, what they're saying you don't have? So, so most, when you look at, so just picking on Harvard for a little more. when They you can look, take it. They can take it. Okay. Yes, they can. And, <laughs> and, and they do, and they don't seem to care. Um, uh, when you look at their public information uh, of, of their inventory, you'll see that about 96, 97% of those ancestors listed have geographical information tied to them. That means that there's absolutely a nation that they can repatriate to and that there is enough evidence to do that. The questions, the concerns come like if there's absolutely no information. So there are no burial belongings that kind of uh, can provide evidence of maybe a region or particular tribes that use mm -hmm. particular um, uh, uh, pottery or other uh, cultural mm -hmm. items uh, for burial belongings. Uh, so if there's absolutely nothing, then yes, an ancestor is culturally unidentifiable. But other museums have actually repatriated ancestors that had absolutely zero evidence to support their affiliation. And they did that by consulting with 574 federally recognized Native nations in the U.S. and allowed them to decide how best to care for these ancestors who were removed from their homelands and their connection. So who were removed by the ones affiliate people affiliated with directly or by people employed by the ones holding them now. Yes, yes. So that's really the only way to do it would be to go to the 574 recognized nations, not the perpetrator of the crime. <laughs> because if it were being done today, it would be a crime, right? It is. Well, it is in most states, not all states. In some okay. states, you can still uh, dig up Native ancestors. And, um, you know, well, they do that to us over here. So I know that that's, you know, it goes on, yes, but I'm just do. saying like, if somebody were to go on a dig, like what happened that got them their so-called collection, which they call that, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these go back way, way back in time. And they couldn't do that kind of a dig right now, typically. Yeah. So, so what, what's their, I'm trying to understand their logic or how they think that that kind of a, and, you know, determination is okay. Mm -hmm. given what you just explained. I wish I had a simple answer for this. I wish I could get into the minds of these um, institutions and understand what their holdup is. Uh, 
Um, what we, I guess what we can presume is that Western institutions have a history of uh, one, the way that they make money is, is uh, quite often through research and having large collections open up the possibility for researchers and students and others to come to their institution, spend their tuition dollars and, and other funding um, and foundations to put their money and investments into that institution for scientific research into their collections, right? So their collections have a monetary value to them for one, uh, one reason. I think a second reason is just this kind of Western science arrogance that they have ultimate freedom to do whatever they want with others' bodies without free prior and informed consent mm -hmm. because they're scientists and they're trying to gain knowledge for the betterment of humanity and their institution, their museum is supposed to share knowledge with the world. And so their, their mission, their purpose is to share knowledge um, and educate the masses. However, I think we can all agree that to do so today without consent, without any uh, conversation with the relatives of the people that they want to extract DNA from, that they want to do destructive research from and understand what their religion and beliefs are and whether or not that's appropriate. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of boggles the mind why an institution would be so resistant um, to human beings who, who want to continue their beliefs and life ways and have a choice in the matter. I think you're right, though. I think it does kind of come down to money. There's a monetary value to them. I would see I the Hawaiian word for those ancestors, what we would say is kupuna. So they're having our Evi kupunas in their collection, so-called collection. I personally would call them being held hostage. You know, and the thing for most, what I understand, most Native peoples, it's like their, their life, so-called life is over. But spiritually, no, they're still there there's still mana in that. And so it's kind of genocidal, really, because it does damage us. It damages the living native by having our ancestors like that. Yeah. And, and just think of how much money, how many careers yeah. were created off yeah. of our bodies. Yeah, off of our ancestors' bodies. And, and still to this day, there was recently um, uh, an archaeologist, anthropologist, her name... I hate even to say her name. It's kind of like, you know, Beetlejuice. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, you can name, say it once. <laughs> Elizabeth Weiss. And she actually sued um, Cal State uh, San Jose. San Jose, right. Because they would not allow her to utilize uh, the native remains for her research. It has to do with religious freedom. And she said that was a interference of... It was interfering with her freedom somehow? You no, know, that NAGPRA was an impermissible imposition of native religious freedom on her right Wow. Uh, to study and educate the masses, that she should have a right to study 
um, because that's her profession and that's the an anthropologist and archaeologist's mission is is to do this this intellectual research. Uh, so she resigned. I think that was a forced resignation, and I believe the the legal case that had come out of that has been dropped. Uh, but but she and that kind of ideology that that Western science is somehow superior to human rights, basic human rights, and all uh, you can look at any kind of international convention or the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and other uh, covenants and international laws. They all are protective of the ability of people to manifest their religions and cultures without uh, this type of, of Western science extraction. So it's just unbelievable that we, well, I guess it's not unbelievable in this day and age, but it well, is, it's quite, it's, it's still quite harmful and concerning because it's, this is a continuing attack on, uh, on our health and yes. security as a people. Right. This, this so continues to cause harm. It's, you know, there's what's been done to the land. There's what's been done to the culture and the languages. And then there's what is still being done through this practice. Yeah. At some of the most respected and I'll say um, expensive institutions, a place like most Harvard. That's right. And we haven't talked about the UC or Cal State system at all. Um, well, let's do that. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a huge system. Right. And and not only is there a federal law, uh, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, but California has a California NAGPRA uh, that provides a higher level of protection than what the federal law provides. So um, uh, it, it's really great to see that. Uh, and because NAGPRA really is the floor of right. what institutions should be doing, Cal NAGPRA provides greater rights. And the UC Berkeley and the UC system just uh, constantly, even after the law has been passed and uh, California is doing audits uh, of how NAGPRA work is going in the UC system, it just can, keeps coming back that consultations are being delayed, repatriation decisions aren't being made, and, and for some reason the work is not being done. I have some theories about why that is, but but it, it's it's really uh, confusing that that a college like UC Berkeley um, that serves many Native students would still have so many native bodies in their basements and boxes and et cetera. Well, it, you know, it calls into question uh, the legitimacy of that institution really uh, with regard to its position on any human rights, because if they can't respect the rights of the native people whose land they are on and return the remains of the ancestors from these lands, then I don't, why should, you know, and I'm just saying this just as a thinking person, why would I trust an institution like that with anything? And that's, you know, that's one of the problems I think in the whole system is that, you know, whether it's a governmental thing or a university thing, it's speaking out both sides of their mouth and getting away with it. 
And then we're all conditioned into going along with it. I mean, uh, you know, when I, you know, having this conversation with you or talking about it with other Native people, it's, I mean, I'm really glad that there are Natives doing what you're doing and what the association is doing, because this is like the last line of resistance in a way to an ongoing settler colonial destruction of Native world, because it hasn't ended. Although progress has been made to, obviously, you know, they're not outright gunning us down, but this is the kind of issue that, and then talking about Berkeley or Harvard, really prestigious institutions that everybody wants to go to, they, they get away with this. And why, you know, nobody should want to go to those institutions if they're treating Native peoples like this. And, and I say this as a Hawaiian person, what they do to a Native Hawaiian, to any of our Evie, they do to us. They do to the living Native. And this is not something I feel the need to write uh, a thesis on for the non-Native to understand. It's just the fact of how we live, who we are, our existence. We're not disconnected from those elders just because they've been kidnapped and they're being held hostage in a basement at Berkeley. Um, We still have this genealogical, cultural, spiritual, psychological connection to them. And like you said, it damages our well-being as Native peoples. Unfortunately, it's not just Native bodies that are being used this way. Uh, So through the NAGPRA process, what we've also found is that many institutions hold uh, African bodies. They hold Chinese bodies. They hold bodies of of the poor and destitute. Um, And they've been used uh, for scientific study, Uh, and uh, remain in collections at many of these institutions. Have you, are you aware of any instances where the people from those, let's say communities, although that's not a big enough word, have been able to step forward and use NAGPRA to get those remains interred? So here's a little federal uh, Indian law primer. Um, So the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed by Congress out of Congress's authority to pass legislation specifically for Native nations. And that arises from language in the Constitution. So Congress has power to pass legislation specifically for Native nations. Um, It quite often does not have the same kind of authority for other minority groups. And the reason why it's different is because Native nations have a political relationship with the United States based on treaty and other federal law, whereas those minority uh, groups um, do not have that political relationship. They are considered races in the United States versus political entities. Mm -hmm. And, And therefore, passing legislation that benefits them is often seen Uh, won't pass muster with uh, legal tests that look at discriminatory acts of Congress. So so it would, it it likely, uh, a NAGPRA that applied to African Americans um, would likely be overturned in in federal court because it would be seen as as discriminatory. So would somebody have to, 
be able to prove specific ancestral connection to those remains as a non-native. They'd have to be able to say, that's my great-great-great-grandfather in there, and I want him back. Is that what they'd have to do? Uh, basically, and that's uh, what we call um, kind of lineal descendancy. Like, I can prove that's my aunt, my uncle, my great-great-grandma um uh in order to to return those ancestors and and that kind of case and claim could absolutely be made um under current law um i believe and there are people working on those issues uh to try to figure out the best way to move repatriation forward for other marginalized peoples as well as indigenous peoples all over the world um you're, you're saying that NAGPRA has international implications. No, I'm not. But as far as marginalized uh, communities, marginalized people whose bodies have been taken for research without consent, mm -hmm. um, that applies to indigenous peoples all over the world. But NAGPRA would not apply to right. indigenous peoples outside of the United States and Alaska and Hawaii. Right. Right, right. Are amendments being made right now to NAGPRA? Uh, amendments aren't being made to NAGPRA, but there is a full-on redo of the NAGPRA regulations. And so uh, Congress passes a law, and that, that's NAGPRA, but in order to really um, detail the process in which NAGPRA is going to operate, uh, Congress delegated authority to the Secretary of the Department of Interior, which is currently um, anti-Deb, uh, Deb Holland. And so the Department of Interior um, has passed regulations back in 1995 that implement the act. Now, those regulations suck, no. <laughs> to put it bluntly. <laughs> So the Department of Interior has been undertaking uh, tribal consultations and uh, provided a proposed rulemaking of brand new regulations that are a complete uh, redo, complete amendment of the current regulations. Well, can you give uh, us an example of what's what's not good about the current regulations so that we understand that? So the current regulations don't define uh, really what tribal consultation means. So if if the duty of the museum or the institution is to first consult with tribes so that they can better determine cultural affiliation, but there's no definition of what that means, then that's a loophole that museums can um, benefit from and say, well, we did consultation, we sent them a letter, right? right? Um, so it's not defined well. And, the, and institutions have been using that, that loophole to not consult with tribes uh, as that word should be defined. So, so there'll be a new definition of consultation and what it means for a museum to consult with tribes in the new regulations. Um, are you folks at AAIA a part of that process? Oh, we are absolutely a part of the process. We, um, uh, throughout, we've been consulting with Native nations um, and even talking to the Department of the Interior uh, to understand uh, what the Department of Interior uh, regulations 
uh, are supposed to do and understanding what tribes really want to see from those regulations. We brought tribes together and uh, they told us what they wanted to see. We developed written comments. Um, we've got like more than 30 pages of comments that, that we worked out with tribes uh, that we provided to the Department of Interior. That information is available on our website for those that are interested. Um, we've also, though, we've also worked with Congress and will continue to do so um, because there are tweaks needed in the legislation itself. So we would like to see changes in the act, um, uh, but those are minor to what's needed in the, the regulations. And so we hope that, or from what we hear, um, that those regulations should be final and published before the end of the government's fiscal year, which is September 30th. So we're hoping to see a brand new world of NAGPRA efforts after September 30th. Well, that's really exciting, and I hope it is done by then. That's great news. That's actually the best news I've heard on this subject in a while. Speaking of government processes, one of the things that I found, uh, and you sort of alluded to this when we were talking about what makes an institution want to just hold on to these things that they're calling a collection. And one of the things that was mentioned in that ProPublica piece is about the National Science Foundation providing funding. Can you comment on that a little bit? Because that's an average person or non-academic. We hear National Science Foundation, like over here, we end up dealing with that because of things like the desecration of Mauna Kea and telescopes and sacred sites. That's like a biggie. So NSF wants to maybe give money or not give money to something. When I hear science, my go-to isn't, what are they doing to ancestral remains? So can you just help people understand how that happens? Yeah. So um, many universities, a lot of funding, a lot of really substantive funding can be provided to universities through the National Science Foundation and other uh, national foundations uh, to provide uh, funding for research. And a lot of that research has included studying Native ancestors and, and cultural items without the free, prior, and informed consent of Native nations. Uh, and also, um, there have been institutions that collect National Science Foundation dollars, even though they're continuing to violate the law or to not repatriate under the law as, as they should. So there's this continuing uh, financial interest and no, no real check mechanisms within the National Science Foundation or in other foundations that, that give money for research to determine whether an institution is in compliance with NAGPRA, whether they have types of, of research protocols that require uh, consent and collaboration and, and consultation with the communities that they're trying to study. Um, it, and it seems, it seems crazy that we would not include the people who were studying in, in research. <laughs> um, and I, I love there's, um, if I'm sure many of your listeners know who Vine Deloria is, and he's written some amazing books. And, and one book of his is called Red Earth, White Lies. And he goes into so many 
theories and discussions of from science, uh, including the Bering Strait Bridge <laughs> theory, and uh, uses his wonderful hu humor and sarcasm to make fun of science, and then compares it to what native people know and have always known that Western scientists have always scoffed at. Uh, but we're learning today, I mean, if, if we look at the traditional environmental and ecological knowledge and wisdom that tribes have maintained, I mean, we're only now, science is only now starting to work with indigenous peoples to learn about relationships in our ecosystems mm -hmm. and how those relationships work together and with human interaction for the benefit of, of the ecosystem as well as the human, right? I'm so glad you brought up Vindaloria because that is actually one of the most important books. It's, it's, it's a book that people should read if they want to understand uh, what's behind what we're talking about here, but also understand something about the character of anthropology and archaeology as it's visited upon Native peoples. And also, it's just a great read because he, he was one of the funniest people ever to put ink to paper. We're running out of time, so I want to make sure before we finish up here, I know you have a conference coming up and we're going to have you hopefully have you back on the show before November when the conference happens, if that's okay. But can you talk a little bit right now just about what that's going to be and why you're having it? Just kind of sum it up in about a minute. So the ninth annual repatriation conference um, uh, is going to be on November 7th, 8th, and 9th in uh, at the Citizen Potawatomi Nations Grand Resort uh, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And our annual repatriation conference always brings together uh, tribal leaders, academics, museums, institutions, foreign institutions, uh, collectors, dealers, artists, uh, religious leaders from Indian country uh, to discuss uh, repatriation strategies. This year, we are going to be focusing on those new NAGPRA regulations and training under those new NAGPRA regulations, as well as work on international repatriation and, and developing uh, best practices and strategies for working with, with foreign governments and, and foreign institutions uh, towards repatriation. We're going to have Angeline Booley. Everyone has to get her uh, most recent book. She's a, a Sault Ste. Marie uh, a tribe of Chippewa Indians citizen, and she wrote two books. One was Firekeeper's Daughter. That was her first one. The second one's called Warrior Girl Unearthed. And okay. it is specifically about uh, repatriation and it's kind of uh, uh, a, 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 almost a, a superhero, uh, a native girl superhero book on how to steal items back from oh, I love uh, it. <laughs> uh, yucky, gross collectors who've been collecting our bodies. It's a great oh. read. Um, and, and all your listeners should, should, uh, get that book or listen to it on, a um, uh, one of their book reading applications. Um, uh, and she'll be there at the conference. Angeline Bully will be one of our keynote speakers as will, um, S. James Anaya, who is a legal professor and has also been, 
the Special Rapporteur um, on Indigenous Peoples' Rights at the United Nations. Uh, so we're going to have a, a really great time at that conference this year. Wow, that's, that's excellent news. And I really, really hope that the, the new regulations are out uh, by September 30th, like, you're, like you said, that would be great timing for that event. Well, Shannon O'Loughlin, this has been such a pleasure to talk with you. It goes by so fast, but I really appreciate you coming on First Voices Radio today and updating us on what's going on with this issue of repatriation and, and what you folks are doing is such important work. So mahalo nui for your time. You're cookie. Thank you. You've been listening to First Voices Radio. I'm Anne Keala Kelly. Tiokas and Ghost Horse will be back with you next week. Mahalo for allowing me to share this sacred time with you. It's always an honor. As mentioned at the top, we will close now with two songs, a brief but loving tribute to Sinead O'Connor, whose funeral took place on Tuesday. The first song is a live 1993 recording of Sinead's deeply resonant and political rendition of Danny Boy, a song often heard at an Irish wake, even in the Irish diaspora population of the U.S., it feels both sad and fitting to include it here now. But once heard, I promise Sinead's voice singing this song will live in your heart forever. And the closing song is Natural Mystic by Bob Marley and the Wailers. It was played from large speakers attached to the roof of an old VW van that preceded the hearse carrying Sinead to her final resting place. As is the custom in Ireland, her body was driven past her last home there, which was in the town of Bray in County Wicklow, where thousands lined the road to cover her casket with flowers. May eternal rest be upon this artist who had a voice bestowed by the gods, this Irish girl who became a warrior woman and stood up to call out the centuries of soul-devouring abuse heaped on children by the Catholic Church. It happened to the Irish, and we all know it happened to the first peoples of the Americas and other colonized countries. Peace on Sinead O'Connor, also known in her last five years on earth as her chosen name when she converted to Islam. Shuhada Sadakat. Shuhada in Arabic means one who bears witness, and Sadakat in Urdu means truth. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from black.
say 